was written for me. It's a promise that I could believe. From all my sin and my shame, even heartache and pain, it was signed and confirmed on a hill. So I rest my case at the cross. For now I have someone to champion my cause. I've been justified, satisfied. Oh, I have it all. So I rest my case at the cross. Don't feel sorry for me. When you see I'm in need, there's a judge who grants mercy and love. All my burdens he lifts, all my sin he forgives, every trial is won through the blood. So I rest my case at the cross, for now I have someone to champion my cause. I've been justified, satisfied, oh, I have it all. So I rest my case at the cross. I've been justified, satisfied, oh, I have it all. So I rest my case at the cross.
Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Great message and great job on that song. Wow. Again, we are honored and so thrilled to have you. If you're visiting with us, we are just thrilled that you made your way here to Community Baptist Temple. And uh, if you are a regular customer, we're glad you made it too. Amen. We're always glad to have you. And uh, if you do not have a church home where you attend faithfully and consistently, we want to invite you to come on out regularly, be a part of the services. Well, you know, I heard about a, a boss, and he's talking to one of his employees, and he said, Do you believe in life after death? Yes, sir, I do, the employee said. Well, then, that makes everything just fine. I mean, after you left early yesterday to go to your grandmother's funeral, she stopped in to see you. (laughs) It was Palm Sunday, and um, because of a sore throat, a little five-year-old boy, Johnny, he stayed home from church with a babysitter. And when the family finally got home that that afternoon, they were carrying several palm branches, and The boy asked what they were for, and he said, well, uh, people held these over Jesus' head as he walked by. He said, wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I don't go, he shows up. (laughs) Well, we certainly want Jesus to show up, don't we? Well, I tell you, it's important that he does. Amen? Yep. Speaking of families, this one prospective father-in-law. He asked this young man, he said, hey, can you support a family, young man? That's a good question, right? I mean, every dad needs to know if the guy that's going to marry his daughter can support. And he says, young man, can you support a family? And the groom was kind of surprised. And he said, well, no, I was just planning to support your daughter. The rest you'll have to fend for yourselves. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And we're glad to have you, as I've said that over and over again, but it just can't tell you how encouraging it is for you to be here today. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, we're going to read through verse 18 today. And of course, it is Easter, and we are excited about Easter as the Christian faith, those that believe in Christ. Boy, this is a big day on the calendar, amen? Big day. And yet, I would like to say this, in reality, every day is a big day. Because Jesus didn't just rise for that day. He's risen. And every day we celebrate the resurrected Christ. Because without His resurrection, we'd be in a mess today. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. We begin reading there. It says, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and 
What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were like were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. John is on the Isle of Patmos. And, you know, the critics of Christianity have long existed. And way back in John's day, there were those who hated believers and those that hated the Christ and those that hated the idea of a risen Savior. John, of course, is placed in a vat of boiling oil from what tradition tells us. And the idea is, or the concept was, and the story goes, that he, being submerged in that boiling oil, that vat of oil, did not melt away. He did not die. As a matter of fact, he overcame And some say, well, it never really happened. I know, and neither did Daniel in the lion's den. Neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And neither did Jesus walk on the water. But may I say, i got to believe there's probably something to the story. And the fact is, is that ultimately we know for sure, according to the Word of God, that John ends up on the Isle of Patmos, exiled because of his faith, exiled because of his concern for the cause of Christ. And here we find him now. On the Isle of Patmos. And the Bible goes on to say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. John hears a voice. He says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now the Lord's day, in the context of the book of Revelation, doesn't necessarily speak of Sunday. It's not as though he was on a Sunday morning and all of a sudden he's in the Spirit. That's not necessarily what he's discussing. That's not probably the primary emphasis here. The context of the passage is talking about he's, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. Now, what that implies then is that day of the Lord implies those, those, that thousand-year millennial reign. It incorporates and it also includes the seven-year tribulation period. See, right now we are in the church age, they would call it, or the church period. And, and it's an age or dispensation of grace, the Bible calls it. And we have those seven churches that we even read about earlier that represent and, and, and give us indication of what that time period would be like for the professing church. And so we have this 2,000-year period from the time that Jesus... Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again to the present. We are in the church age. And so then at one point, we're going to have what's called the rapture of the church. So we have the church age in which you and I are free to receive and accept Christ by grace through faith. And then there's going to be the rapture of the church. Those that have placed their personal faith in Jesus will be taken out and up. 
And then the seven-year tribulation period will kick off sometime thereafter. And for seven years, God will pour out His wrath upon the world, the earth, those that have rejected Him and those that have even crucified His prophets. And He will also judge Israel in those seven years. Then God will begin to deal with Israel, though, during that period of time. And although, once again, Satan will seek to destroy them and wreck and ruin them and annihilate them, God will protect them and ultimately carry them through. So we have this time of the church age or this church period in which you and I now live today where a man or a woman can simply receive the Lord Jesus and their sins can be forgiven and they can be given a home in heaven. And then we have the rapture of the church where that group or body of believers is taken out. Then we have that tribulation period that kicks off along with that millennial that then will take place. That is the day of the Lord. That beginning with the rapture of the church right on through the tribulation into that thousand year millennium of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of seven years, what happens? Jesus returns. And when He returns, He establishes Himself on the throne of David and He rules and reigns with a rod of iron. And for one thousand years, Jesus Christ will literally be on earth. And so we have the day of the Lord. I believe as we look at the passage in Revelation, when it says... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I believe he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's going to now describe, he's going to tell us what he sees in that day. And for the entire book of Revelation, we see the seven-year tribulation right on into the millennium and to the new heaven and new earth. John hears a voice. And it says, I am he that liveth. And was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen? That's what he says. And have the keys of hell and of death. There's a couple of things I want to note today. I want to consider the statement. I want to consider the story. I'm going to look at the sign. And then I want to see what we can learn from the passage. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. And in the short time that we have together... May God help us to understand maybe a little bit more of who Jesus really is. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all that you mean to us and all that you have done for us. And Lord, today we have gathered today to celebrate your resurrection, Lord Jesus. Thank you for not just dying, but thank you for rising again. And thank you for the hope of eternal life for all those that will put their personal trust and faith in you. Lord, we need you today. We love you and just ask that your Holy Spirit would walk these aisles and convict us and show us our great need. Lord, we'll thank you for those who will ultimately place their faith in you because of what they will both hear and experience today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we note the statement. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So someone is alive here. but was dead. So they, were, they, they are alive now, but they were dead. And then it goes on to say now that they're alive forevermore. So we have somebody that is living, that was dead, and now is going to live forever. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to understand who the passage is referring to or who is speaking in the passage I believe the answer to that question is simple. I believe it's Jesus Christ. 
Not only that, but it's interesting to note in verse 1 of the book of Revelation, the Bible simply says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ, it's, it's His revelation, i got to believe He shows up in the book. And here we find Him right off the bat in chapter 1, speaking to John. The statement. But what about the story? I mean, here we have this person who is alive but was dead, and now they're alive forevermore. What of the story, then? Well, let me tell you about a man who was conceived of the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Mary was found of child with the Holy Ghost. Not only that, we note that when he was born, the Bible makes it clear that he would be born of a virgin. Meaning that she had never been with a man. Obviously, the Spirit of God had come upon her and she was supernaturally conceived. And as a result of that, she has a child. And the Bible says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The story begins with a young woman who has never been with a man. A young woman who has lived her life the best she could to please God. and A young woman who ultimately God supernaturally conceived in and therefore brought forth His own. The Bible tells us that that which was born would be called Emmanuel. God with us. And literally, God came to earth and God lived a life. The Bible tells us that was sinless. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ never sinned. He was not born of mortal man. He wasn't born with a a corrupted blood system. He wasn't born with sin in His veins, so to speak. He was born perfect and sinless, and He lived a sinless, perfect life. In 1 Peter 2.22, it says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Someone says, well, I believe that Jesus existed. I'm just not convinced that He was sinless. My friend, then you don't have a sinless Savior. You don't have a perfect sacrifice. That means you have no salvation. Because if Jesus Christ was like you or He was like me, He had no authority to die on that cross and claim your sin. He was just as dirty and filthy and rotten as we are, if that's the case. May I say, He is sinless and He is perfect. And He sinned. He never once sinned on this earth. Not only that, but He performed countless miracles. This one that was speaking to John performed countless miracles. In Luke chapter 7, take your Bible if you would please. Turn over there in chapter 7 verse 22. If you're inclined to turn, chapter 7 verse 22 the book of Luke. One of the great evidences of the authoritativeness of Jesus Christ or of His his credentials, if you will. His credentials were based on His ability to do what He did. And may I say, He did unbelievable and miraculous works. The Bible says in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. John is in prison at this time. 
Oh, I know he's the one that baptized Jesus, but he has gotten, has become discouraged in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the work. And now he finds himself in a prison and ultimately he would have his head removed for his belief. But Jesus says, now you fellas, he says, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached. He says, John may be getting a little discouraged and John may be even doubting who and what I'm all about. But you go back and tell him what I have done and what I am doing. And he will be once again, not only confident, but he will be excited about me. So excited that he died. On behalf of the Lord. John 20, 30 and 31 says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. Do you realize He was falsely accused and yet He opened not His mouth? Do you realize that he stood before those false accusers and yet trying to defend himself? Instead of defending, he said, you know what? Just lock it, throw away the key. But you know what? He died a sinner's death too. This sinless, perfect Savior, this God who left heaven and came to earth, he, being sinless, still hung on a cross and paid or died a sinner's death. You and I have read it over and over again. But the Bible says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. We deserve where we are at. We deserve what we're getting. For we receive the due reward, he says, of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Even the thief on the cross wanted to recognize the fact that Jesus Christ did not deserve to die on Calvary. He was sinless. But he died a sinner's death. But you know what? He rose again, too. And that's what we're celebrating today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The angel said, He's not here for He is risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Jesus ultimately reaches out to His disciples and they too are doubting. They're wondering. They're concerned about the reality of Christ and His resurrection. And Jesus speaks up in the book of of Luke chapter 24 verse 39 and says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. I rose bodily. I'm legitimately here. It's not some spirit and I'm not some ghost. I'm Jesus Christ who came sinless and perfect, lived a sinless and perfect life, and I died on that old rugged cross to pay for the sin of the world. I was buried, but may I say, I've risen again. I've rose from the dead, and here I am. But then He ascended up to the Father. He didn't remain on earth after He rose. He went back to be with the Lord, His Father in heaven. The Bible says in Acts 1, verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Remember, I said we're in this church age, and this is the day and age in which we live. There's going to be a rapture where the church will be taken up and out. 
Then the tribulation period will kick off for seven years. And Jesus Christ will return in glory. May I say that that return, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. The return of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's speaking of in Acts chapter 1. He's coming back again. He's not going to stay away forever. He's coming again. We note the statement, the story. I want to consider the sign. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 41. Often, Jesus, from, well, from time to time, mentioned the fact that He would die, that He would be crucified, that He would even rise again. Many wanted a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. And here's what Jesus said, and here's how He responded in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 41. It says, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jesus was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Notice again the sign. The sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know what he's saying? You want to know what offers tremendous validity to Jesus and His deity and to who He really is? His resurrection. That one sign that I'll give you, he said, is the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. So shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. When I come out of that grave, my friends, when I come out of that grave, my disciples, I want you to know there'll be no question, none at all, who I am. I'm Jesus. I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with you today. The Lord says, I was dead. But not any longer. I'm alive, he says in Revelation 1.18. I was dead, but I'm alive now. And I'm alive forevermore. Often people are uncertain about the existence of Christ. But few scholars would disagree that man, a, a man by the name of Jesus lived roughly between 2 B.C. and 33 A.D. History documents that this particular man was not a myth, but a real person. And the historical evidence for this is truly amazing. For instance, the Roman historian Tacitus, writing in about 115 A.D., records the events surrounding Emperor Nero, uh, Emperor Nero in July of A.D. 64. What had happened was is that, of course, Rome was burned to the ground. Nero uh, was the one who strategically did this. He took this in hand and he made sure it happened. But what we find here is that Nero was blamed for being responsible at one point. So here's how it goes. Tacitus says, consequently, quote, consequently, Tacitus, 115 A.D., mind you, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, if you will, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, Christ's resurrection, 
thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Notice again, he points back to a day, this group, this sect, of whom Nero blamed for the burning down of this city. He says, listen, he tried to put it on the Christians, and they are Christians because of a particular person named Christ. And that particular person was put to death by Pontius Pilate. That's what someone, a a historian said, a secular historian said in 115 A.D. In about 112 A.D., the Roman governor of what is now northern Turkey wrote to Emperor Trojan regarding the Christians in his district. He made this statement, I was never present at any trial of Christians. Therefore, I do not know what are the the customary penalties or investigations and what limits are observed. Whether those who recant should be pardoned, whether the name itself, even if innocent of crime, should be punished, or only the crimes attaching to that name. Meanwhile, this is the course that I have adopted in the case of those brought before me as Christians. I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time, threatening capital punishment. If they persist, I sentence them to death. For I do not doubt that whatever kind of crime it may be to which they have confessed, their their pertinacity and inflexibility... You've got to realize he wrote this a long time ago when it was really... English was really at its height. No, I'm teasing. But anyway, his pertinacity and inflexible obstinacy should... Certainly be punished. Isn't that interesting? I want you to see that. For I do not doubt that whatever kind of crime it may be to which they have confessed, their pertinacity and inflexible obstinacy should certainly be punished. You know what he's saying? They're stubborn. They won't back down. They will continue to claim and name the, the name of Christ. They won't get behind the status quo. They won't get with the program. You know where America's headed? You'll be persecuted because you just won't agree with the populace. That's where it's going, by the way. Just like it was in those days. Now notice he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, The very fact of my dealing with the question led to a wider spread of the charge, and a great variety of cases were brought before me. An anonymous pamphlet was issued containing many names. All who denied that they were or had been Christians, I considered, should be discharged, because they called upon the gods at my dictation and did reverence, and especially because they cursed Christ, a thing which it it is said genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. 112 A.D., and Christianity is alive and well. Even in a culture and in a world where it is persecuted and even met with death. This passage, of course, indicates that Christianity was throughout the Roman Empire at this time. Just 80 years after Christ's death. We have eyewitness accounts. We have historians looking back years later. I mean, the popular historian, Will Durant, he wasn't a Christian either. He wrote concerning Christ's historical validity. He said, quote, the denial of that existence seems never to have occurred even to the bitterest Gentile or Jewish opponents of nascent Christianity. It never, he said, in those days, it would have not even come, no would have even thought about that. Was there a Christ? Wasn't there a Christ? That's ridiculous. Nobody even considered that in those days. 
Again, he goes on to say, quote, that a simple, a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? They turned the world upside down, these early Christians did. The Jewish historian Josephus, you may have heard of him, he was writing to the Roman government in the 70s A.D. He records some incidental things regarding Christ and the church. Here's what he says. Basically, he confirmed that John the Baptist died at the hand of Herod. Of course, that's recorded in the Gospels. As well as of the death of, quote, he says this, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, he delivered them to be stoned. What he's saying is the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. What he's pointing at is that Jesus Christ was a legitimate, a a real figure in history. May I say there is very few that are honest to say that there is no Christ mentioned in history. Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago. And you may dispute whether he is God in flesh. And you may say to yourself, I don't believe that he was who he claimed to be. But my friend, you can't deny the fact that he lived and existed 2,000 years ago. The greatest proof of the resurrection is still found in a question. Where's the body? It's interesting in Matthew 27, verse 62 through 66, that the Jews for fear requested soldiers to guard the tomb. Those Jews that did not appreciate Christianity, those Jews that were worried that their faith was going to be destroyed because of a resurrected Savior, said, you put a guard on that tomb and you make sure nobody steals the body. And yet in chapter 28, verses 11 through 13 of that same book, the disciples and followers were scared. They were defeated and they were so depressed because of the loss of Christ. And yet, they're the ones that supposedly stole the body from Roman soldiers who are trained. Hey, he is not here for he is risen as he said. I want you to know, according to the word of God, that Jesus Christ not only said he would rise again, but he did rise again. So what are we to learn from all this then? What are we to take away from it? I mean, we we have this statement, a very simple statement. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We have the story of a Savior who literally was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect, sinless life, ultimately yielded his life on a cross called Calvary, died, was buried, and rose again the third day. We have historians, we have history itself that attests to the reality of a Christ who lived 2,000 years ago. What are we to learn from all this? Number one, the Bible's true. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 160, the Bible says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. I want you to know that the book that you hold in your hand called the Word of God, or the Bible, is that indeed the Word of God. That's what we know. Jesus did live 2,000 years ago. Christ did live 2,000 years ago. And He did die on a cross. And He was buried. And the Bible says He rose again. I want you to know that the historical Jesus is proof that this book is true. The Bible's true. But if the Bible's true, then you want to know what else is true? Jesus is the Christ. As it mentions in the Word of God, He wasn't just a mere man. 
He wasn't conceived in a normal relationship. God the Father Himself supernaturally conceived in a wonderful vessel named Mary, and she brought forth a child. They called His name Emmanuel, God with us. In Deuteronomy 18.15, the great prophet Moses said, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him shall ye hearken. And ultimately, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read about that one that would come. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's who Jesus was. That's who Christ is. He's wonderful. He's the Counselor. He is the Mighty God. He's the Everlasting Father. And He is the Prince of Peace. Today, in this book, the Word of God, we know the Bible's true. And Jesus, therefore, is the Christ. He is the Promised One. He was the one that they spoke of in the Old Testament that would ultimately come and change the world and turn it upside down. It would be Jesus Christ who would bring peace to the earth and ultimately hope and order. And Jesus Christ indeed will. You say, well, where's all that peace? It's buried in all our sin. When God makes things right on this earth, there will be peace again. But there will be no peace in your life today. There'll be no peace in your marriage. There'll be no peace in your home. There'll be no real peace in your mind until you settle the reality of Jesus Christ, a risen Savior, who all alone and only alone can bring you peace. He's the Prince of Peace. We see the Bible's true that Jesus is the Christ. We also learn then that mankind is in need. Take your Bible, look at Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we read, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Man is in need today. I mean, the Bible's true, right? And if the Bible's true, then we have confirmation that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus being the Christ, why would He come and die on an old cross, be buried and rise again? Because mankind is in need. And the need that mankind has is toward righteousness. The Bible says there's none that doeth good. No, not one. That doesn't mean that you don't do good things. What that means is from me to you, you may appear good. And you may seem good as we judge ourselves amongst ourselves. But may I say, compared to a holy, righteous, sinless, perfect God that lives and dwells in heaven, we are all sinners at the very root of our being. And there is nothing good about us. The very righteousnesses that we have, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. The best we can give God isn't good enough, is what he's saying. And so mankind is in desperate need. And therefore we read Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him... Upon Him, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ came to earth that day and He was, he was born, Emmanuel, God with us.
us. And He lived a perfect, sinless life to ultimately go to a cross called Calvary to die and to bear the sin, the guilt, and the shame of a sinful world. And there He died for you. And He died for me. And He rose again to prove that He was the one that needed to do it and the only one that could do it. Finally, we learn one last thing, and here it is. Eternity awaits then. Eternity awaits. The Bible says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. There's an appointment that you have and that I have with God. We have an appointment. The Bible says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeared for a little time, then vanisheth away. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. The truth is, you and I do not know whether we'll be here tomorrow or not. Isaiah Thomas, one of the basketball players for the Celtics, the Boston Celtics, got news just the other day on a Saturday at practice that his 22-year-old sister died in a car accident. 22 years old. She had to keep an appointment. And I say that there's an appointment on God's calendar today. You have that appointment. And I have that appointment to meet. And you can't rearrange that appointment. You can't get out of that appointment. It is fixed and it is in stone and it is on God's calendar. And eternity awaits us. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. We have an appointment and we have a judgment. We're going to stand before God, the Creator of all the universe. There's an appointment to keep. See... We gather today to celebrate Jesus and His resurrection. But what does it really mean to you? Is it just like any other story you read? Is it like reading about, I don't know, the Easter Bunny? Is it just a story that you have learned to love? Is it something that we enjoy? Is it something that we have culturally grown to believe? But may I say... That's, I hope it's more than that to you. I hope you realize the severity of this reality, that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. And if indeed He is who He claimed to be, then my friend, there's an eternity that awaits. And there is no way getting around this. You must do something with Jesus then. It's not a matter of saying a prayer. And it's not just simply of believing something. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But the fact is, it's not going to take care of the problem. Only Jesus can take care of the problem. And I'm not talking about go to church and read your Bible and pray every day and grow, grow, grow. I'm talking about before you ever get to that place in your life, there has to be a time when you agree and say, God, Lord Jesus Christ, You are who You claim to be. You didn't just die on a cross 2,000 years ago. You rose again the third day. And I believe that You are God in flesh. And I believe that You died for my sin. And I believe that You alone can pay for my sin. And I want a relationship with You. And I want to invite You in my life. 
And if you've not invited Christ in your life, my friend, you are as lost as lost can be. You have no hope in eternity because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by Him. It's not enough that you believe that He died. It's not enough that you believe He rose. It's not even enough that you go to church and read your Bible, friend. You've got to have Jesus in your life. And may I say, you must trust Him today. He alone can save you. Only He can do that. We live in a culture today that is telling us that he is no more than a mere man, that he's a figment of someone's imagination. Had a guy yelling at me from the window the other day going, You guys, why do you believe in fairy tales? Why do you believe in fairy tales? Why do you believe in fairy tales? My friend, I'll tell you this much. Jesus rose from the dead. And oh my, he is not a fairy tale. He's alive today. And I'll tell you one thing. Without Jesus, I have no hope of stepping from this life into the next. Your job, your family, your home, your things will not get it done. He has to be in here. And I want to encourage you today to take this Jesus that we read about in this book, that we came here to celebrate concerning, and invite Him in your life if you haven't done it. There ought to be a time, a place in your life when you can look back and say, you know what? I didn't just say a prayer. I entered into a relationship. I didn't just go to an altar. I fell at the feet of Jesus. And I begged Him to come into my life. And you began a relationship that day that has continued from then on. Friend, if you've not begun that relationship, you've got to get with the program. His program. It's not a Baptist thing. It's not a Methodist thing. It's not a Muslim thing. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not any other group or denomination or anything else. It's a Bible thing. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, he says. Jesus is the only way. If you died this very moment, right where you're seated, if your appointment came up right now, where would you open your eyes? Heaven is real and hell is real. Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago and He died and He rose again. This book's true. He's the Christ. He's the only way. If you died this very moment, where would you spend eternity? In just a moment, we're going to give you a chance to respond. Nobody can make you do anything. You're your own person. I'd be a fool to think that anyone could make you do anything. Jesus is a gentleman. He wants to come to him. He wants you to come to him voluntarily. Do you want a relationship with the Christ, the creator of all the universe today? You ought to want that. You'll never be full. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be complete without it. And he loved you enough to come and die on a cross 2,000 years ago. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Won't you settle it today? Won't you receive Christ? Won't you enter into that relationship if you haven't already? Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you're already a child of God. And that